today's scripture is from Genesis 2, verse 1 through 3. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Oh, good morning again. Uh, it's good to see you this morning. Oh boy, hang on now. A couple of, uh, uh, real quick, a uh, couple of housekeeping things. One, uh, as, as I noted last week, because Tennessee is back on the map, things are getting back to normal in life. Uh, my life is actually getting even more back to normal this, this week because I get to see my wife for the first time in over a month, the longest I've been away from her, uh, in our 27 almost years of marriage. So that's a great thing. Life's getting, that's a good thing for life. Uh, secondly, um, I, I hope I didn't make anybody uncomfortable last week when I noted like there's some people smiling, whatever. There are actually three things or, or things that I misspoke uh, that were pointed out to me afterwards. But I, I want you to just be at ease. If I say something that's weird or, or just, uh, it's okay to laugh. I'll, I'll figure it out. We can talk about it later. But don't feel uncomfortable uh, laughing when I make mistakes up here and misspeak, because I will do that. Uh, because, well, anyway, that's another thing. Uh, finally, speaking of mistakes, uh, just want to give you a heads up for the next two weeks. We're actually going to switch the order of the passages. Uh, and this is, uh, this is largely my fault and miscommunication. Uh, as far as when I was actually going to be here and when I wasn't going to be here. So um, uh, your preacher um, uh, in two weeks was already preparing to preach the sermon for next week. So we're just going to reverse the order. doesn't really change much in the flow of the passage. You'll see why in a little bit, but just want to get those three things of housekeeping out of the way. Now, here we go. So here we are uh, back in Genesis. This is our fourth week. Uh, looking at uh, this book of the Bible, the first book, uh, and last week we saw the uh, creation of humanity. Now, I'm, I'm sorry, I've got another housekeeping issue. Is there a way to kind of flatten this thing just a little bit? Because I'm like, I need to... You're the man. Thank you. That's perfect. Thank you. All right. Four housekeeping things. Okay. Um, so last week we saw the creation of humanity, and uh, we saw that uh, it's, it was, it's a pretty unique claim in Christianity that um, simply because God created humanity in his image, therefore all human beings uh, have intrinsic worth and value. Uh, this morning we come to the seventh day of the creation Work week, as it were. Sorry, I'm still getting settled here. There we go. Uh, and I would remind us once more that uh, even though this book was certainly written for us, it was not written to us. Um, it was written to a particular people in a particular time that had uh, particular concerns, some of which parallel ours today. Um, but uh, it's important that we 
make a legitimate attempt, as, as we would read any document, but especially the Bible, and especially Genesis, especially the first couple of chapters of Genesis, that we're seeking to cooperate with the original author uh, and his audience and his intended purposes for why he was writing. Um, Moses did not write in English, and God doesn't write in code. There's no secret code to try to figure out. It is written plainly for the original audience. That does sometimes require some work on our behalf, on our part. But if we're going to take the authority of Scripture very seriously, that must be taken in consideration when we come to God's Word. So, with that uh, review and introduction, will you pray with me one more time as we come to God's Word? Heavenly Father, we do ask that you would meet with us in this place with these words that, yes, we grant were written many, 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 many years ago. But we believe that all Scripture is inspired, and you mean it for our good. And so we ask that your Holy Spirit would show up now and speak through me, around me, in spite of me. But speak to us so that we might know when we leave this place, we have met with the still living God. We pray these things for Christ's sake. Amen. Uh, over the years, I have uh, come to realize more and more experientially that that this preaching thing that I'm doing right now is a very odd thing. <laughs> um, first of all, it, it's, it's quite a vulnerable experience. Uh, you spend a lot of time during the week uh, preparing, writing, scratching, editing, adding it back, uh, getting it all together so that you can stand up and make a 30-minute or so presentation, less if you're lucky as an audience, uh, presentation, and then you're done. It's complete, and it's given to you. <laughs> and as the audience, you can do whatever you want to with it. You can say, hey, maybe that was decent. Maybe I, there's something there. You can dismiss it. You can ignore it. You can reject it. But it's yours to do with at that point. <laughs> it's kind of a vulnerable feeling for a speaker because <laughs> there's nothing I can do at that point. But then as soon as I've delivered the sermon, and I've talked to other preachers, this is their same experience as well, as soon as I'm done, <laughs> I am immediately aware that starting first thing tomorrow morning, I'm going to wake up and start the whole process all over again. <laughs> and stand up here and do it again in seven days from now. Now, in the history of our faith, there have been numerous preachers who have preached more than once on a Sunday. In fact, Spurgeon was known to preach multiple times daily. I have no idea how he did that. No idea. But don't get me wrong, I love what I do. <laughs> I love this Sunday morning activity, this exercise. But when I am done, my tank is empty. <laughs> I feel spent. I feel wrung out like a sponge. <laughs> and I can't imagine having to do this anytime soon at that moment. And in fact, as I start to engage with the next text and preparing for the next week's sermon, quite often and normally, honestly, uh, it's, the, it's the usual experience that it's not until late Saturday night or first thing Sunday morning when I am filled to the tank again and ready to get back up here and do it all over again. It's just my experience. I know other preachers have that experience. I don't know if that's your experience, Cam. <laughs> That reality, I know that's just my experience and some preachers, 
suggests something to me about life, life's rhythms. Somehow there are some rhythms built into my hard, hard wiring. And this passage in front of us actually does say something about the fact that there is built into this universe a seven-day rhythm to life. Now, again, certainly not every preacher experiences what I experience the same way. And maybe you do or you don't experience something similar in your profession or your field. But nevertheless, the, the passage communicates and makes a claim that there is something about being created in God's image that is reflected in particularly a six days plus one weekly rhythm. How does it tell us this? And what might it mean for us? Well, to begin with, first of all, and it should not, become, it should not come as a surprise to this point, as you heard the passage read, perhaps you heard the repetition that Moses uses here. <laughs> that's, that's becoming something that we've seen regularly from Moses. Verse 2, on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day, made it holy, because God had rested from all his work that he had done. God has ceased what he was doing. And on the seventh day, God, the creator, rested. God did. Now, what the heck does that mean? God rested. I mean, surely Moses is not suggesting that God needed a nap. Now, I, it, was a, it was a lot of work, granted. <laughs> but surely Moses is not suggesting that God gets tired. Well, of course not. I mean, Psalm 121 says absolutely not. There we read, God neither slumbers nor sleeps. No, that's, that's, that's not what's happening. So this rest, at least for God, must be something else. And as you might have guessed, the text actually gives us some clues right here. First of all, notice, the text doesn't simply say that God stopped working. It doesn't simply say that. Rather, there was cessation of the work that he had done, the work he was doing the work he'd been involved in to that point. But that's not the same thing as saying that he stopped working altogether and simply disengaged from the created cosmos. And furthermore, Moses doesn't say simply that God rested. He says he rested from something. Specifically, he rested from all the work that he had done in creation. Now, again, when you and I think of rest, we think of relaxation and napping. We have rest areas. We take rest stops. We're tired, so we take a nap, or we sleep, we rest. But even in the English language, the semantic range of rest is actually wider than that, but we only see it in its negation. When you add the, think about when you add the, the prefix un to rest. What do you get? It's not a lack of sleeping or a lack of next, uh, naps. 
Next, I don't know where that came from. Naps. There's the misspoke by taking note. You can laugh. It's not a lack, it's not a missing or a lack of naps. <laughs> Unrest is chaos. <laughs> Unrest is disorder. Unrest is things not going the way they're supposed to. And that's the sense in that semantic range of rest that is in mind here in Genesis 2. Rest is what happens when things are ordered. For God, when things are organized in such a way that they are intended for and can properly function, he rests. Yes, the Hebrew word for rest can simply mean to cease from something. But usually there's an implication that more is happening than simply a stopping from another action. For instance, in Deuteronomy 12, later on in this Pentateuch, this Constitution, Moses will tell God's people that when they finally get to the land that he has promised, at that time, God is going to give you rest from all your enemies. Moses didn't simply mean, yeah, you're going to be tired <laughs> after this long journey, and you're going to have a chance to take a nap, get some sleep, get caught up. Young parents know what it's like to lose, go for a season of life without regular sleep. You eventually get it back for all you young parents here. That day comes back. What God was telling his people by saying you're going to have rest from your enemies was saying you will no longer be engaged in warfare. And not only that, not simply that you're not going to be at war anymore, but you're not going to experience what you experience in times of war. That chaos, that disorder that results from warfare is going to be a thing of your past. That is the promise that God makes his people when he says, when you get there, I will give you rest from all your enemies. They would know shalom. They would know harmony. They would know order. They would know human and cultural flourishing again when the warfare had ceased. But there's even more happening in God's rest here. Listen to how the psalmist describes resting in Psalm 132. There we read, Arise, O Lord, arise, Yahweh, and go to your resting place. For the Lord has chosen Zion or Jerusalem, saying, this is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell. The psalmist is asking God to rest in the temple in Jerusalem. But he's not asking God to relax there, <laughs> but rather to set up his rule from right there in the temple. Make that his oval office, so to speak. By asking God to go to his resting place, he isn't asking God to make his bed there. He is asking God to make his throne there. In other words, God's rest is God's rule. And so when Moses writes that God rested on the seventh day from all the work he had done, from all of his creating work, he means he was finished establishing the order out of the chaos that he started with in verse 2 of chapter 1. You remember the tohu vabohu, the disorder, the chaos. He had finished bringing complete order and structure and proper functioning to all aspects of creation. And now the cosmos 
was fully completed regarding its purpose. And now God, the creator, was ceasing from his creating work that he had been doing. And now he was beginning his ruling work. It's what theologians refer to as the difference between his creative rule and his providential rule. When God rests from the work he had done in creation, he didn't stop working altogether. If he did, we wouldn't be here. (laughs) God can't take a coffee break, or you and I, we perish. In fact, notice that thus far, we have seen the repetition and rhythm of the six prior days of creation where each day is clearly defined and set apart from the other days. You might remember this repetition, this chorus. Each day finishes with, there was evening and there was morning, the first day. There was evening and there was morning, the second day, so on and so forth. And by the way, it's interesting to note that he says evening and morning, not morning and evening. The evening and morning is not describing a full day like you and I know, but rather the break from the work, from the action that's happening. There was evening and there was morning. The fifth day, the sixth day. But here, in the seventh day, there is no evening and morning the seventh day. And I don't know why this keeps falling down. It's missing. We've seen it six times. It's missing. Anybody else here read Sherlock Holmes or Doyle? There's a scene in one of the short stories where a detective is asking Sherlock Holmes, is there any other point to which you would draw my attention? To which Holmes replies, yes, to that curious incident of the dog in the nighttime. Detective says, but the dog did nothing in the nighttime. To which Holmes replies, and that was the curious incident. (laughs) One would think that if we were specifically supposed to assume that these are ordinary 24-hour days, we would see the evening and morning the next day, here defining the seventh day. But we don't get it. So at least the reader, or the hearer at that time, is to wonder what is going on here. (laughs) Is the seventh day possibly continuing somehow? Well, if God rests by ending his work of creation and ruling by his providence, then the answer is yes. We're still in the seventh day. And Jesus says exactly that when the Pharisees are accosting him for healing on the Sabbath by charging him with working on the Sabbath. Big no-no. And Jesus, not so subtly, I might add, speaks to them in such a way that they must have heard in their ears blasphemy. Because Jesus responds, my Father in heaven, that was blasphemous enough, My Father in heaven has actually been working until now, and I am working. God is still working, ruling with his providential care. 
So no, God is not creating anymore, but he's ruling. His rest didn't mean that he disengaged from his creation on day seven. The Bible doesn't teach deism. That would be deism. He remains engaged. Day seven never ended because his ruling has not ended. But furthermore, he's actually, God is actually demonstrating a particular type or way of providentially ruling over his creation. You see, Yahweh is telling his people that he's not going to be the type of ruler or king that rules from afar, distant from the day-to-day operations of his people, distant from their daily struggles. He won't simply be calling in instructions from a safe bunker somewhere to his commanders on the front line. No, rather, Yahweh will be close to and right next to and in the midst of his people. You see, all along from chapter 1, verse 1, God was preparing a place for himself to dwell, for him to abide, for him to live. Yes, the world and the cosmos was designed to be functioning in such a way that humanity could most properly image the God who created them. But God, as we said earlier in the series, always intended to actually dwell with humanity, to walk with humanity, share relationship with humanity, simply out of his sheer grace and benevolence. And it's exactly what we will see referenced in chapter 3 when we read that God was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. The goal was for this, this place, to be God's dwelling place. For heaven and earth to actually intersect in a way in time and space. And in fact, I think John Walton is on to something. He's an ancient Near Eastern professor when he says that chapter 1, and here in the first few verses of chapter 2, is a homemaking story. You see, there's a difference between building a house and making a home. The house building project ends when that last shingle is nailed to the top of the roof, the door, front door is put in place, a lock is put in place, and it's secure. Then your house building project is done. But homemaking is how a place is prepared to actually live in and to dwell in. And what Genesis 1 seems to indicate is that this is not a narration. It's less a narration of how God built the house and more about how he made his home. Yes, a home for humanity, but also his home. In fact, it would not be a stretch to understand what is happening here using our modern-day understanding and language, calling this cosmos God's bed and breakfast. It's his home where we are his guests. In a few weeks, I will be finally moving into an apartment, October 1st. Yes, I could not find a lease sooner than that. That day is coming. <laughs> and, and, but unfortunately, 
I'm actually going to be away on that day. My oldest son is graduating officially from college, walking ceremony. So I'm going to be home for that and won't be here on the first day that I can get into my lease. So this is a shameless plug for your help um, that weekend, but we'll talk about that some other time. When I get back, if things go as planned while I'm gone, <laughs> I expect I'll be coming into an apartment with furniture and boxes and stuff and just kind of clutter. <laughs> That's what I'll be coming back to. And it'll take a little time to declutter, to organize, to arrange. But the goal is to make a home here away from home. <laughs> but that will require some organization, some decluttering, some moving some things around, some unpacking. That's what God was doing since verse 2, chapter 1. Since we started with the tohu vabohu, he's been making a home, a place that he could dwell with his people. There's one final aspect of God's resting here. Notice that God specifically blesses the seventh day. Now, we've already seen God bless the birds and the fish. We've seen him bless humanity. But it's only here in all of the Bible that God blesses an inanimate object. God blesses a day. Now, when God blesses his people, they flourish. They prosper. What would it mean for God to bless a day. <laughs> well, at least I think it means that it's giving us a day that you and I, especially as God's people, are invited to temporarily cease from our ordinary work we do the prior six days. At least it means and confirms what we said last week, that our image bearing is not our output or capacity. I mean, image of God is not simply mean you're a producer. <laughs> you produce things. You contribute. If that was essential and core to what it means to be created in the image of God, it would make no sense to set aside a day where that's not happening and then to bless it. <laughs> Prior to receiving this text, the ancient Near Eastern Israelite would have been used to working hard. <laughs> And that's probably putting their experience in a much better light than their enslavement would have borne born out. But they would have been used to working day in, day out, their whole life with no break. There were no days off in Egypt. There were no, vac there were no vacations. There were no weekends. There were no Sabbaths. They worked literally until they died. And now God, out of his grace, <laughs> is about to grant them the gift of rest <laughs> for a full day out of seven. Now, it may not sound as wonderful to you and I today as it would have to that ancient Israelite. But I would make the case that that's because you and I have drunk the Kool-Aid <laughs> of our world of progress and a day off 24 hours to not continue to do what I'm supposed to be doing 
puts us behind in that track of progress. And so it's harder for us, I think, today to actually appreciate and celebrate and be like, wow, thanks, God, for blessing a day like this. But it's not a problem with the day itself. <laughs> There's a quote in the beginning of the bulletin by David Atkinson. He puts it this way. Human life is meant to include more than labor, more than the struggle of the appropriate stewardship of the world, more than the reforming of society. It's not less than that. The six plus one alternation of work and rest is not the rhythm of work plus recovery so as to be able to go back to work. It is a rhythm. It is a rhythm of engagement with the world in work and then thankful enjoyment of the world in worship. That's the Sabbath. That's rest. So it's not that we should think of Sundays, which, by the way, since Jesus' resurrection is the Christian Sabbath. It's not that we should think of Sundays as a time to simply recover so that we can wake up tomorrow morning and do it all over again. That is just thinking of it, again, as if we are what we produce. No, the Sabbath is supposed to be so much more than that. In fact, it was so important for God to set aside and make one special day for his people that he also called it holy. <laughs> and a period of time getting set aside as holy only happens one other time in the Bible. But this is a weekly holy day, a day set aside to celebrate the wonder of God's creation. For he did that as well when he finished his work, to enjoy, to bask in the wonder of what God has done, both in his works of creation, but also this side of the cross, his works of redemption. I'm coming to the close. God doesn't make this one of his commandments to keep the Sabbath holy as a way to restrict us and put a burden on God's people. You see, you and I really need, in a lot of ways, to deconstruct why our initial reaction to the commandment, keep my Sabbath holy, is that it restricts us. It can be really hard for you and I living in this day and age to comprehend what Jesus meant and to take him seriously when he says, the Sabbath was actually made for man, not the other way around. But it was a gift. It was a gift of God's grace to humanity. Now, that's not to say that we can simply cast off any guardrails on what our Sabbath might look like. But there are more than two options here. It's not simply, on the one hand, either the absolute legalism that the Pharisees had made it out to be, that you and I want to run away from, and rightfully so, and we should. <laughs> Nor, on the other hand, that there's absolutely no considerations of how to keep it holy on the other. But we first, if we are going to understand that, and that's for a sermon another day, if we're going to understand that, we must first understand God's heart behind the Sabbath. When rightly understood, it won't feel like a burden to us at all. Because for now, 
the Sabbath for us humans is two things moving forward. <laughs> On the one hand, it's a replay, a reproduction of the rest we already have in Jesus Christ. Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. He's not saying I'm going to give you naps. <laughs> I'm not going to give you relaxation. I'm going to give you rest. No, it's not going to make everything easy, make life, to put it all perfect. But you're going to know my presence and my order within it. It's both a replay, a reproduction of our redemption, but it's also a rehearsal of the ultimate rest that we will one day have that Hebrews 4 talks about. When the writer of Hebrews says a Sabbath rest remains. There is coming a day when you and I will no longer feel burdened by either the temptations <laughs> to just simply see ourselves as a cog in the wheel and work harder and strive harder because we feel like our image is simply based on what we can produce and contribute to society. That temptation will be completely gone. <laughs> and also all of the things that make it laborious and exhausting because the world is broken. There's coming a day when the world will actually function the way it was functioning at this very beginning part in Genesis. When we get to the new heavens and the new earth, we won't be sleeping. <laughs> we will be engaged with God, as Revelation says, ruling actually with Jesus, the true image of God over all things. But doing it in such a way that actually brings us life. If you're here this morning, you have not yet known the rest that Jesus offers when he says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Go to him. Say, Jesus, I need that kind of rest, because I do. <laughs> and I was just thinking this morning, as I was finishing up the final, coming in, I started getting this little pain in my back and my kidney. And I'm like, I don't know if that's like pre for, of a kidney stone or what. I need to talk to somebody if you've ever had a kidney stone. But I'm like, I don't need that right now. <laughs> and the thought that hit me. There's coming a day. You won't have to worry about that ever again. <laughs> you're not there yet. But remember, you're coming. You're entering a day. You're entering into worship. When you're going to be refueled, your tank is going to be refueled to get you through another week <laughs> as you long for with great anticipation that day when Jesus returns and gives us his ultimate rest. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do ask that you would convince us that your instructions, your laws to us, your commandments to us are not to be a burden. They're actually to set us free. And there are many multiple reasons, not simply our sinful heart, that keeps us from truly believing that. Would you break through anything even this week, as we might have conversations, we might think about this, as we might revisit this when we're alone with you, would you remind us that you genuinely mean it, Jesus, when you say, come to me, all who are weary, and I will give you rest. Help us to truly believe that that is what you offer, and it is what we experience and can experience on a weekly basis as we rehearse for the ultimate rest we will one day experience. We pray these things for Christ's sake. Amen.